Section 28 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the invasion of julius caesar to the revolution of sixteen eighty eight by david hume volume one e section twenty eight chapter fifty six part one chapter fifty six charles the first when two names so sacred in the english constitution as those of king and parliament were placed in opposition no wonder the people were divided in their choice and were agitated with the most violent animosities and factions the nobility and more considerable gentry dreading a total confusion of rank from the fury of the populace enlisted themselves in defence of the monarch from whom they received and to whom they communicated their lustre animated with the spirit of loyalty derived from their ancestors they adhered to the ancient principles of the constitution and valued themselves on exerting the maxims as well as inheriting the possessions of the old english families and while they passed their time mostly at their country seats they were surprised to hear of opinions prevailing with which they had ever been unacquainted and which implied not a limitation but an abolition almost total of monarchical authority the city of london on the other hand and most of the great corporations took part with the parliament and adopted with zeal those democratical principles on which the pretensions of that assembly were founded the government of cities which even under absolute monarchies is commonly republican inclined them to this party the small hereditary influence which can be retained over the industrious inhabitants of towns the natural independence of citizens and the force of popular currents over those more numerous associations of mankind all these causes gave their authority to the new principles propagated throughout the nation many families too which had lately been enriched by commerce saw with indignation that notwithstanding their opulence they could not raise themselves to a level with the ancient gentry they therefore adhered to a power by whose success they hoped to acquire rank and consideration and the new splendor and glory of the dutch commonwealth where liberty so happily supported industry made the commercial part of the nation desire to see a like form of government established in england the genius of the two religions so closely at this time interwoven with politics corresponded exactly to these divisions the presbyterian religion was new republican and suited to the genius of the populace the other had an air of greater show and ornament was established on ancient authority and bore an affinity to the kingly and aristocratical parts of the constitution the devotees of presbytery became of course zealous partisans of the parliament the friends of the episcopal church valued themselves on defending the rights of monarchy 
some men also there were of liberal education who being either careless or ignorant of those disputes bandied about by the clergy of both sides aspired to nothing but an easy enjoyment of life amidst the jovial entertainment and social intercourse of their companions all these flocked to the king's standard where they breathed a freer air and were exempted from that rigid preciseness and melancholy austerity which reigned among the parliamentary party never was a quarrel more unreal than seemed at first than between the contending parties almost every advantage lay against the royal cause the king's revenue had been seized from the beginning by the parliament who issued out to him from time to time small sums for his present subsistence and as soon as he withdrew to york they totally stopped all payments london and all the seaports except newcastle being in their hands the customs yielded them a certain and considerable supply of money and all contributions loans and impositions were more easily raised from the cities which possessed the ready money and where men lived under their inspection than they could be levied by the king in those open countries which after some time declared for him the seamen naturally followed the disposition of the seaports to which they belonged and the earl of northumberland lord admiral having embraced the party of the parliament had appointed at their desire the earl of warwick to be his lieutenant who at once established his authority in the fleet and kept the entire dominion of the seas in the hands of that assembly all the magazines of arms and ammunition were from the first seized by the parliament and their fleet intercepted the greater part of those which were sent by the queen from holland the king was obliged in order to arm his followers to borrow the weapons of the train bands under promise of restoring them as soon as peace should be settled in the kingdom the veneration for parliaments was at this time extreme throughout the nation the custom of reviling those assemblies for corruption as it had no pretense so was it unknown during all former ages few or no instances of their encroaching ambition or selfish claims had hitherto been observed men considered the house of commons in no other light than as the representatives of the nation whose interest was the same with that of the public who were the eternal guardians of law and liberty and whom no motive but the necessary defence of the people could ever engage in an opposition to the crown the torrent therefore of general affection ran to the parliament what is the great advantage of popularity the privilege of affixing epithets fell of course to that party the king's adherents were the wicked and the malignant their adversaries were the godly and the well affected and as the force of the cities was more united than that of the country and at once gave shelter and protection to the parliamentary party who could easily suppress the royalists in their neighbourhood almost the whole kingdom at the commencement of the war seemed to be in the hands of the parliament what alone gave the king some compensation for all the advantages possessed by his adversaries was the nature and qualities of his adherents 
more bravery and activity were hoped for from the generous spirit of the nobles and gentry than from the base disposition of the multitude and as the men of estates at their own expense levied and armed their tenants besides an attachment to their masters greater force and courage were to be expected in these rustic troops than in the vicious and enervated populace of the cities the neighboring states of europe being engaged in violent wars little interested themselves in these civil commotions and this island enjoyed the singular advantage for such as it surely was of fighting out its own quarrels without the interposition of foreigners france from policy had fomented the first disorders in scotland had sent over arms to the irish rebels and continued to give countenance to the english parliament spain from bigotry furnished the irish with some supplies of money and arms the prince of orange closely allied to the crown encouraged english officers who served in the low countries to enlist in the king's army the scottish officers who had been formed in germany and in the late commotions chiefly took part with the parliament the contempt entertained by the parliament for the king's party was so great that it was the chief cause of pushing matters to such extremities against him and many believed that he never would attempt resistance but must soon yield to the pretensions however enormous of the two houses even after his standard was erected men could not be brought to apprehend the danger of a civil war nor was it imagined that he would have the imprudence to enrage his implacable enemies and render his own condition more desperate by opposing a force which was so much superior the low condition in which he appeared at nottingham confirmed all these hopes his artillery though far from numerous had been left at york for want of horses to transport it besides the trained bands of the county raised by sir john digby the sheriff he had not gotten together above three hundred infantry his cavalry in which consisted his chief strength exceeded not eight hundred and were very ill provided with arms the forces of the parliament lay at northampton within a few days march of him and consisted of above six thousand men well armed and well appointed had these troops advanced upon him they must soon have dissipated the small force which he had assembled by pursuing him in his retreat they had so discredited his cause and discouraged his adherents as to have forever prevented his collecting an army able to make head against them but the earl of essex the parliamentary general had not yet received any orders from his masters what rendered them so backward after such precipitate steps as they had formerly taken is not easily explained it is probable that in the extreme distress of his party consisted the present safety of the king the parliament hoped that the royalists sensible of their feeble condition and convinced of their slender resources would disperse of themselves and leave their adversaries a victory so much the more complete and secure as it would be gained without the appearance of force and without bloodshed perhaps too when it became necessary to make the concluding step 
and offer barefaced violence to their sovereign their scruples and apprehensions though not sufficient to overcome their resolutions were able to retard the execution of them sir jacob astley whom the king had appointed major-general of his intended army told him that he could not give him assurance but he might be taken out of his bed if the rebels should make a brisk attempt to that purpose all the king's attendants were full of well-grounded apprehensions some of the lords having desired that a message might be sent to the parliament with overtures to a treaty charles who well knew that an accommodation in his present condition meant nothing but a total submission hastily broke up the council lest this proposal should be further insisted on but next day the earl of southampton whom no one could suspect of base or timid sentiments having offered the same advice in council it was hearkened to with more coolness and deliberation he urged that though such a step would probably increase the insolence of the parliament this was so far from being an objection that such dispositions must necessarily turn to the advantage of the royal cause that if they refused to treat which was more probable the very sound of peace was so popular that nothing could more disgust the nation than such haughty severity that if they admitted of a treaty their proposals considering their present situation would be so exorbitant as to open the eyes of their most partial adherents and to turn the general favour to the king's party and that at worst time might be gained by this expedient and a delay of the imminent danger with which the king was at present threatened charles on assembling the council had declared against all advances towards an accommodation and had said that having now nothing left him but his honour this last possession he was resolved steadily to preserve and rather to perish than yield any further to the pretensions of his enemies but by the unanimous desire of his counsellors he was prevailed on to embrace southampton's advice that nobleman therefore with sir john culpepper and sir william uvedale was dispatched to london with offers of a treaty the manner in which they were received gave little hopes of success southampton was not allowed by the peers to take his seat but was ordered to deliver his message to the usher and immediately to depart the city the commons showed little better disposition towards culpepper and uvedale both houses replied that they could admit of no treaty with the king till he took down his standard and recalled his proclamations in which the parliament supposed themselves to be declared traitors the king by a second message denied any such intention against the two houses but offered to recall these proclamations provided the parliament agreed to recall theirs in which his adherents were declared traitors they desired him in return to dismiss his forces to reside with his parliament and to give up delinquents to their justice that is abandon himself and his friends to the mercy of his enemies both parties flattered themselves that by these messages and replies they had gained the ends which they proposed the king believed that the people were made sufficiently sensible of the parliament's insolence and aversion to peace the parliament intended 
by this vigor in their resolutions, to support the vigor of their military operations. The courage of the Parliament was increased, besides their great superiority of force, by two recent events which had happened in their favor. Goring was governor of Portsmouth, the best fortified town in the kingdom, and by its situation of great importance. This man seemed to have rendered himself an implacable enemy to the king, by betraying, probably magnifying, the secret cabals of the army, and the Parliament thought that his fidelity to them might on that account be entirely depended on. But the same levity of mind still attended him, and the same disregard to engagements and professions. He took underhand his measures with the court, and declared against the Parliament. But though he had been sufficiently supplied with money, and long before knew his danger, so small was his foresight, that he had left the place entirely destitute of provisions, and in a few days he was obliged to surrender to the parliamentary forces. The Marquis of Hereford was a nobleman of the greatest quality and character in the kingdom, and, equally with the king, descended by a female from Henry the Seventh. During the reign of James, he had attempted, without having obtained the consent of that monarch, to marry Arabella Stuart, a lady nearly related to the crown, and, upon discovery of his intentions, had been obliged for some time to fly the kingdom. Ever after, he was looked on with an evil eye at court, from which in a great measure he withdrew, and living in an independent manner, he addicted himself entirely to literary occupations and amusements. In proportion as the king declined in popularity, Hereford's character flourished with the people, and when this parliament assembled, no nobleman possessed more general favor and authority. By his sagacity he soon perceived that the commons, not content with correcting the abuses of government, were carried, by the natural current of power and popularity, into the opposite extreme, and were committing violations, no less dangerous than the former, upon the English constitution. Immediately he devoted himself to the support of the king's falling authority, and was prevailed with to be governor to the young prince and reside at court, to which, in the eyes of all men, he gave by his presence a new lustre and authority. So high was his character for mildness and humanity, that he still preserved, by means of these popular virtues, the public favor, and every one was sensible of the true motive of his change. Notwithstanding his habits of ease and study, he now exerted himself in raising an army for the king, and being named general of the western counties, where his interest chiefly lay, he began to assemble forces in Somersetshire. By the assistance of Lord Seymour, Lord Paulet, John Digby, son of the Earl of Bristol, Sir Francis Hawley, and others, he had drawn together some appearance of an army, when the Parliament, apprehensive of the danger, sent the Earl of Bedford with a considerable force against him. On his approach, Hereford was obliged to retire into Sherborne Castle, and finding that place untenable, he himself passed over into Wales, leaving Sir Ralph Hopton, Sir John Berkeley, Digby, and other officers, with their horse, 
consisting of about a hundred and twenty to march into cornwall in hopes of finding that county better prepared for their reception all the dispersed bodies of the parliamentary army were now ordered to march to northampton and the earl of essex who had joined them found the whole amount to fifteen thousand men the king though his camp had been gradually reinforced from all quarters was sensible that he had no army which could cope with so formidable a force and he thought it prudent by slow marches to retire to derby thence to shrewsbury in order to countenance the levies which his friends were making in those parts at wellington a day's march from shrewsbury he made a rendezvous of all his forces and caused his military orders to be read at the head of every regiment that he might bind himself by reciprocal ties he solemnly made the following declaration before his whole army i do promise in the presence of almighty god and as i hope for his blessing and protection that i will to the utmost of my power defend and maintain the true reformed protestant religion established in the church of england and by the grace of god in the same will live and die i desire that the laws may ever be the measure of my government and that the liberty and property of the subject may be preserved by them with the same care as my own just rights and if it please god by his blessing on this army raised for my necessary defence to preserve me from the present rebellion i do solemnly and faithfully promise in the sight of god to maintain the just privileges and freedom of parliament and to govern to the utmost of my power by the known statutes and customs of the kingdom and particularly to observe inviolably the laws to which i have given my consent this parliament meanwhile if this emergence and the great necessity to which i am driven beget any violation of law i hope it shall be imputed by god and man to the authors of this war not to me who have so earnestly labored to preserve the peace of the kingdom when i willingly fail in these particulars i shall expect no aid or relief from man nor any protection from above but in this resolution i hope for the cheerful assistance of all good men and am confident of the blessing of heaven though the concurrence of the church undoubtedly increased the king's adherence it may safely be affirmed that the high monarchical doctrines so much inculcated by the clergy had never done him any real service the bulk of that generous train of nobility and gentry who now attended the king in his distresses breathed the spirit of liberty as well as of loyalty and in the hopes alone of his submitting to a legal and limited government they were willing in his defence to sacrifice their lives and fortunes end of section twenty eight chapter fifty six part one